Um, a little bit about me before I jump in. If you don't know, so I, yeah, I lead a church in Davenport, Iowa, which by the way is two and a half hours away, but it is just a significantly different culture than this. Um, we are a church full, and hear me, there's diversity, but it's, I'm dealing with like the conspiracy theorists. You know, we're in Iowa, so like people just go that way. Where in Chicago, it's like, man, it's so different. It's so cool. It's so unique. I like think of Paul in the time of like Rome, right? There's so much diversity and you're such a minority being a believer in a secular culture. It's a really cool, powerful thing. Anyway, I'll get more into that. I'm not going to dive in too much. Um, no, so I lead a church in Iowa. I'm married to this beautiful woman right here, Deanne. Deanne, wave it, everyone. Married for 16 years. We have two children. Oh, yeah. Give it up. We have two children. I have a 14-year-old girl and an 8-year-old boy. Um, yeah, I'm really into golf. I golf a lot. I used to be into fitness. I used to own CrossFit gyms and be an entrepreneur in the business world. Um, I owned a cafe, helped start a pharmacy, did a bunch of stuff. Long story short, so you know who's speaking to you about seven years ago, God completely rocked me. I left the business world. I sold everything. Um, and I became just obsessed with Christ and his mission. I wanted to do something that really mattered. Not that business doesn't matter, but I, I mean, God just pulled on me and called me out of that world and into past. I never, ever, ever dreamed I would be a pastor. I hated that life. My dad was a pastor growing up and I saw how thankless of a job that it was. But man, now I see the beauty in it. Um, the sacrifice, the suffering. It's, anyway, would you guys stand with me as I read the scripture today? Scripture today is from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, and it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come and gather with your people, to worship you, to glorify your name, Jesus, God. Would the Holy Spirit take control of my own mind and my own vocal cords? I want no opinion of my own to come out of me, God, but I want it to be yours, would you soften our hearts today as your message comes forth? Would it change our lives? Would it shape us and mold us? Whatever we need to hear, Father, let us hear it, God. And all God's people said, you may be seated. So I've got to tell you how I came about this message. So my kids are in um, a classical Christian education school. I've become pretty obsessed with this school. They, uh, they go through these steps in their learning. And one thing they do is they really emphasize beauty. So I've had this new obsession with beauty. Like, how do you define it? What is it? I have a very philosophical mind, right? I want to know what is beauty. Well, these kids start from a very young age learning about beauty. They do field trips out to the city to see what's beautiful. They start learning about art. And the reason they teach them that is they teach them to see God in beauty. And I was talking to the dean of the school. We had a meeting. And he's, a, he's an MDiv guy, and he's really, really good in the Greek language. And he talks about how we miss so much of Scripture, because so much of Scripture really has a beautiful artistic language to it that when you put it in English, it's not quite the same. For instance, in this passage we read today, the last line, it says, a people who are zealous for good works. Well, the term good in the New Testament, there's two different types. There's one that means good as in moral, right? There's another that means beautiful, 
Well, in this passage, the good works there is actually a people who are zealous for beauty. A people that are zealous for beauty. Now, I believe in man, we have an innate desire, all of us, for beauty. C.S. Lewis says this, the appetite for beauty comes inscribed into every soul and it is a very large appetite. St. Basil the Great said, by nature, men desire the beautiful. There's a connection between truth and beauty. Plato says this, beauty is the splendor of truth. What do we know that Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think another way to say it is inscribed in every soul, people have a desire for God. People, whether they realize it or acknowledge it or not, people have a desire for God, a desire for the beautiful. We were walking, Matt and Heather did graciously took us down to the river walk, which is really cool, by the way. We're walking yesterday, and I'm, I'm thinking about my message that I'm going to preach, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, man, this architecture, the people. I'm looking at people's faces, and I'm seeing them smiling, and I'm looking at them a little bit differently. I'm looking at them as people that bear the image of God, and I'm seeing the beauty of God's hand on creation. See, as Christians, we have the ability to walk in that light. Now, the problem is, what beauty is ultimately satisfying your soul? What beauty is ultimately satisfying ours? Is it the bookworm with his million books and different stories? Is it the man looking for endless beautiful women? Is it our never-ending search for different Netflix series, right? Is it the ability to buy more beautiful houses and homes and cars? Is it the beauty of hard work and accomplishing something great in our career? What beauty ultimately satisfies our souls? We know that Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they rest in God, the beauty of God. See, in this passage, Paul sets up all these things before at the end he says, God's goal is to create a people for his own possession who are zealous for beauty, zealous for God, zealous for love, zealous for who he is, not for what the world has to offer. So in this passage, he has three things we're going to focus on today, three things that he sets up before he makes that final statement that I think is crucial that we walk out as believers. The first one is this. The first verse he says for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now we know, you guys have probably heard, familiarity breeds contempt. We've heard that over and over and over again. Grace has come, Jesus died, blah, 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 blah. We've all heard that a thousand times. But if you read Paul's writings, it is always the central focus of his message. And it needs to be the central focus of our lives if we're to ever walk out what he's called us to walk out. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Salvation, the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross has to be the central thing in our lives. It is the engine for everything else. It is the house that you and I live in. There's a book recently that I read. Absolutely love it. Dane Ortland. Anyone know Dane Ortland? Anybody? No? You guys need to go look Dane Ortland up. Great author. He wrote a book called Deeper. Now, as a pastor, you always get the people in your church who are like, man, I want to go deeper with God. And now, that, that, usually I'm excited when they say that, but I'm also a little bit nervous because what exactly does that mean? 
Um, a lot of times what we mean is it's, it usually means something mystical, unfortunately. It means I need to go like get in my closet and like do like a bunch of prayer and listen to a bunch of worship music. Well, that's not bad, hear me. It's not. But deeper, Dane Orland argues, there's nothing deeper than the cross of Christ and what it accomplished for you. There is nothing deeper than that. I can sit and meditate on that reality for the rest of my life and not ever touch the depth of what that offers. So my goal as a pastor oftentimes is like, okay, that's awesome. I want you to listen to worship music. I want you to pray. I want you to do all those things. But unfortunately, you know how I really measure somebody that's gone deeper with Christ? Is there's a level of brokenness. There's a level of brokenness. They see themselves and their giant need for God. Matt and I were talking yesterday. We were talking about a Shiloh. Anyone by chance see the Shiloh Booth interview that just came out? Um, he met with Bishop Barron. He was recently in a movie. He played a Padre Pio that comes out in September. Anyway, he's, he's basically become a very, very passionate Catholic, and he's talking about his experience. And we talked about how cool it was as a pastor watching this interview because what we saw was there was real brokenness there. He talked about the level, right, of disparity that he was walking in the sinful place that he had came from. You could feel that God was doing a real work by the level of brokenness in him. Now, as a believer, that is where you and I have to live and have to stay. As I grow in Christ, as I'm sanctified and transformed, my view of myself does not grow in the sense that I see myself as better. My view of myself in this kind of, this sounds harsh, but hear me, my view of myself actually gets worse. As I see more of the beauty of Christ, I see myself as less. But what does that do? It creates real affection for the person of Jesus. Real affection. The most intimate times of my life walking with Jesus Christ has always been on the other side of some kind of sin in my life. Because I experience the grace of God in those moments. And he accepts me and forgives me over and over and over again. And I fall on my face and I'm like, thank you, God, that you died. See, we don't lose that. That's not just once I raise my hand, accept Jesus, and then it's over. That is for the rest of our walk with Christ. That is a day-to-day continual process. It's really quiet in here, so I'm going to assume you're listening intently. I'm getting no amens, no like... So the first thing Paul says is that grace has come. Salvation has come for all people. That has to be number one if you were to walk out the call that God has on your life. You have to live there. It has to be the house that you wake up every morning and you say, Father, I thank you that you've died and that I've been made right with God and that I have unlimited access in relationship to the creator of the universe. That's, thank you, that's the reality. That's the reality of what we live in. Listen, and if that's gotten dull in your life, if that has gotten dull in your life, I'm praying today, right, that we go back, that we get with God, we pray, we get back in our word and we revive that because it is the biggest miracle mystery that's ever been announced to the entire universe. We've got to get back to that central thing. See, what I see in Christianity, hold on, I'm not going to go there yet. Pause. So I'm in, if you guys, I didn't didn't mention this, but I am finishing up. I'm in my, getting my master's right now in divinity. 
And recently I took a class and I had a professor. And very rarely do you get a professor you like, but once in a while you do. And this guy was awesome. And um, it's an Old Testament class. And he talked about, he goes, hey, before we take this class, I want you to throw every system you've ever learned scripturally out the window. Every system. Now, what do I mean by that? Like reformed theology, all the different systems that you bring to scripture sometimes, throw it out. He goes, here's what I want to show you. I want you to read the Old Testament. I want you to read the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And I want you to see that the most important thing in every single book and chapter is God's relational presence. Is God's relational presence. And he goes, then I want you to go read later. I want you to go read the the historical books. Then I want you to read the New Testament. And I want you to see that the whole point of the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation has been God's presence with his people. More than anything else, God has always wanted relationship with you and I. More than anything else, he wanted to be with us. But when you're a holy and just and perfect and loving father, and there's a sinful people, right? There's there's something off. We can't be in his presence. His presence will consume us. We see it with Adam and Eve in the garden. God walked with them. We see it with Abraham, that he come, he chose Abraham and he said, you know what, I'm going to bless you for eternity and be with my people. We see it with Moses. He said, hey, you're my people. Now I'm going to give you the law and I'm going to show you that if you do these things, you can be in my presence. And then finally, we we have Jesus come, God with us, Emmanuel. It's always been about God being with people. Now, why do I say that? Because if you and I are to be zealous for beauty on mission to the world, doing great, beautiful things for God, we have to know that this is the central piece. That when you see a homeless person in need, when you see someone impoverished, more than fulfilling that physical thing, you need to see that that's a person that needs to be restored to relationship to God. That's the root issue. Now, I saw this actually lived out and played out for probably the most real time of my entire life recently. I went to a church in Indianapolis. And this church, they're in the inner city. Indianapolis is the top five most impoverished cities in the country. And he is dead center and one of the poorest communities. And every Sunday, he has about 250 to 300 homeless, drug addicts, ex-prison inmates show up to his service. There is literally nobody with money in his services. Now, what's amazing is the way that he runs this ministry is not a ministry of, hey, I'm going to give a bunch of people money. It's a gospel-centered ministry in this. He has homeless people come to his doors to get food with his food pantry. And they said, hey, I'm here to get food. He goes, oh, that's fine. Go ahead and sign up right here. Um, You can serve a couple hours a week. And if you come serve for a couple hours a week, I'll give you food. Now you'd think, whoa, why? He's restoring dignity to people that feel that they're worthless. See, the gospel restores dignity to people who feel like they're worthless. The gospel says you're made in the image of God, that you have value on your life. We need your help. And then people are like, I'm not worth anything. Why, Why do you need my help? And this ministry is exploding. He's buying up the neighborhood. The stories that I saw with my own eyes, I couldn't believe it. That's the gospel. And listen, that's what you saw Jesus do. 
Being zealous for beauty, you see, Jesus never just spoke things to people. He did both word and deed. Both word and deed. But salvation, restoring relationship with God, was always the primary thing. Always the primary thing. Now, what I've noticed in my own life is this. Whenever Paul says to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, we can never get comfortable, you and I. We can't get comfortable. We have to constantly be working out, God, what is it that you want me to change in my own heart? When I open up the scriptures, I place myself, I read about myself and my own disparity. I read about what God wants to work out and change in my life. I'm constantly working out my own salvation. You are saved and being saved. You're not just, I raise my hand, accept. You are being saved. Do you hear me? Now, that's number one. First verse, for God, for the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here's number two. Then he says this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second point is this. We have to be a people that pursue holiness. A people that pursue holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is set-apartness, godliness. There's something that's different about you than the rest of the world. See, if we are to become a people zealous for beauty and good works, we must become a people who pursue holiness and godly lives. It is not simply a byproduct of accepting Jesus. It's something that you and I are called to pursue. See, Paul says in that verse, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That means this, that when I become a Christian, I don't just naturally renounce ungodliness in my life. It says I'm trained to renounce ungodliness in my life. There's an active pursuit on you and I of learning what we need to renounce in our own lives so that we can become holy. Now I'm gonna break down holiness, so hold on one second. So since we've been saved, we're now being trained. See, holiness is something I often think about. I think, I look back at the Puritan times, I look back at church history, and I see that it was a way bigger deal to them than it is to us. But I always got it backwards. And hear me, maybe some of you kind of feel the same way. When I used to think of being holy, I was like, oh, I need to become holy so God's not mad at me. I need to become holy because I've got to be seen as righteous to those around me. I need to become holy so I reflect God, which is absolutely true. You do need to become holy so you reflect God. But more than any of that, you know why you need to become holy? To become holy is to get more Jesus. When I become more holy, I get more Jesus. In John 14, 21, he says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And listen to this next part, I absolutely love this. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will manifest myself to him. I don't know about you, I don't want to be in a dead faith. I don't want to be in a faith that doesn't experience God. I don't just want to read about God and know God this way. I want to know God this way. 
I want to experience Jesus Christ in my life. Well, he says if I keep his commandments, he will manifest himself to me. See, John Calvin, when he talked about that verse, he says this, I will cause them to approach more nearly and more familiarly to me. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who pursue holiness, who do what I say, for they shall see God. See, I think so often we get caught up, grace is great, but we almost live this hyper-grace life where it's like, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins, I'm good, I can kind of relax a little bit, which is, there's some truth in that. Because we forget, though, that pursuing holiness, doing what he called us to do, following the Ten Commandments, the law, we don't do it to be justified in the sight of God. We're saved for eternity. Your souls are safe. Here's why we do it, to get more Jesus. You want to change the world around you? You want to become a people that are zealous for the beauty of God? Start lovingly do what he told you to do. Start pursuing holiness, experience more of him, and you will not be able to shut up about Jesus. And I'm not trying to condemn anyone in this room, but if you are not a person naturally evangelizing and telling people in your community about Jesus Christ, this is lacking in your life. I see it lacking in my own life, and I'm a pastor. It's something all of us need to improve on. See, there's an analogy a pastor used recently, and I just loved it. Think of it this way. So does God, I I was thinking about this question, does God's presence leave us? Does God's presence, I don't believe it does, but here's what I believe happens. Pretend you're in a rowboat, all right? And there's the shore right here where my beautiful wife is. right, I'm rowing along, and we're gonna say that's Jesus, okay? And then I take a nap. Now I want you to use the nap as an analogy for I don't pursue holiness. I don't pursue my relationship with God. I'm out of touch with God. I'm not praying. I'm not in my word. I'm not going to church. I'm out of touch. And I wake up and suddenly I'm a quarter mile from shore. See, Jesus didn't go anywhere. He's omniscient. He's always present, omnipresent. He's everywhere. But I did. My perspective changed. So what I do is I get up in the boat. I see, I repent, and I start rowing back towards him. Right? I love that analogy because I feel like that's what it is. God doesn't leave us, but our perspective changes. When I sin, it's been covered on the cross, but I don't feel his presence like I once did. So I repent and I come back. A.W. Tozer says it this way, if we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us, and that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life in a life radiant with the light of his face. Radiant with the light of his face. I don't know about you, but that's the life that I want. I don't want a dead faith. I want a faith where I experience Jesus Christ and who he is. John 15, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy joy may be full. Holiness and joy are intimately connected in the scriptures. Intimately connected. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7. Amen. Says this, do not be unequally yoked with believers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. Now listen, you living in Chicago, this is a very interesting passage. You guys are going to look a lot different than the rest of your city if you're walking this out. You're going to be set apart. You're going to shine in a different way. People are going to experience love in a different way. That's what he's called you to. And then Paul goes in and he cites this from Leviticus. This is showing that the central piece of the whole thing has always been about God being with his people. It says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're called to set apartness. We're called to holiness. It says, God, then when, we set up, when we're set apart, he will come and make his dwelling with us. He will walk with us. We will experience more joy with him. He will manifest himself to us. That makes holiness attractive to me. I don't know if it does to you. It's not just about being better than other people. It's that we get God. We get to experience Jesus. Now, I've noticed this. I have, I have a couple friends. I have... Any gamers in here by chance? No? Not one, two. Yeah, little, yeah, little guy. Me and the little guy. So I do have a guilty pleasure. I play Call of Duty sometimes with my buddies. And recently, I actually led one of these guys. I met him on Call of Duty, and I led him to Christ. It was a two-and-a-half-year process. I'm, like, talking to him on the headset. I'm telling him about Jesus, and he comes to church one time, doesn't like it. Then later on, he starts, just something clicks. The wind blows, the Holy Spirit grabs his heart, and he has completely dedicated his life to Christ, become a member of the church. It's been awesome. Um, but I've noticed he's kind of, he's new, right? I've taken him under my wing and I'm discipling him. And here's what I've noticed, and, and I think that we experience this ourselves. He'll come to church, he'll be doing really good, he'll be on the spiritual high for two or three weeks. Then he'll get caught in kind of a sinful, right, habit, or what's the word I'm looking for? Pattern. He'll get caught in a little sinful pattern. And suddenly he starts, to, he starts to distance himself, right? He starts to like not call me as much, not talk to me as much. He's kind of hit and miss at church. This is what I notice, and this is why holiness is important because you and I, for some whatever reason, the enemy comes in our head, we sin and we start to do this to God. We start to separate ourselves. See, the beauty of the cross and why it has to be central and why Paul always starts off saying things like grace has come, salvation is here for all people, that in the moments when we sin and we're not holy, those are the moments where we can have the most intimate times with Jesus Christ, where we can bring to remembrance the fact that he died on the cross. And so the first thing I do is I call my buddy, I'm like, hey, I don't know what's going on, but I can assume that you're not feeling great about yourself. I can assume that maybe you feel distant from God. And I, I called him, I said exactly those two things and he immediately just, boom, opens up. 
he starts talking about, yeah, dude, I've just, I've done this and I just don't feel right. And I'm, I'm like, listen, that right there, the fact that you don't feel right, those guilty feelings, that is literally the Holy Spirit working inside of you, showing you and telling you that that's not who you are. And this is why holiness means so much. Because when we pursue holiness, when we pursue godliness, we stay more intimately connected to God. Those guilty feelings are... Fourth thing, so that's holiness. That was two. Number three, this is my last one. And then he says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. A people for his own possession. Our identity has to be, first and foremost, sons and daughters of God. Our identity cannot be tied up in, and this is where our culture has such a hard time, it cannot be tied up in what your job is, right? What your sex is, what your race is, All of those things are great, but it cannot, our primary identity has to be sons and daughters of God. As I learn to walk that out, it changes the way I approach certain things. Right? When when there's certain situations and I hear gossip and and something pops up in front of me and I have an opportunity to entertain it and join in or not, I remember that's not who you are. You are first and foremost a son and daughter of God. So I'm not going to go too far into that, but the three things that, listen, we have to, as the church, we have to make salvation primary. We have to pursue holiness because pursuing holiness is where we get Jesus. It's where we experience him. We have to be a people who identify primarily as sons and daughters, a people of his possession. He owns me. Jesus Christ, God, he owns me. He is my Lord. Anything he says goes. Did you just hear that? That matters. Anything that he says goes. Not what culture says. Not what your favorite blog or social media site says. What he says goes. I'm his possession. My life needs to be laid out for his glory, not my own glory. Now, when I was studying this, I wanted to find some people. I was thinking through some illustrations. Who were some people who really lived this life? A people who were zealous for the beauty of God. Zealous for beautiful deeds. Zealous for good works. And what I found was, I didn't know this, but I assumed, I thought of some Christian organizations that had done some really big things. And I thought, there's no way that those people didn't have an intimate life of pursuing holiness, of making salvation central. There's no way they didn't. And and I was was shocked. So George Mueller, he was an evangelist who cared for more than 10,000 orphans, super popular, huge evangelist back in the day. He had 117 Christian schools that he opened. He said this. I just looked up some quotes from these people. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have an urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things 
to have your souls happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance, but now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. I thought that was powerful. William Wilberforce, leader of the abolition of slavery. Why is it so important and hard to get people to study the scriptures? Common sense tells us what revelation commands. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Search the scriptures. Be ready to give to everyone a reason for the hope that is in you. These are the words of the inspired writers, and these injunctions are confirmed by praising those who obey the admonition. And yet for all that we have the Bible in our houses, we are ignorant of its contents. No wonder so many Christians know so little about what Christ actually taught. No wonder that they are so mistaken about the faith that they profess. A deep relationship with God. Salvation Army, William Booth, if there's anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will and all the influence of my life. Last one, Clarence Jordan, Habitat for Humanity. Even though people about us choose the path of hate and violence and warfare and greed and prejudice, we who are Christ's body must throw off these poisons and let love permeate and cleanse every tissue and cell. What a call to holiness right there. Nor are we to allow ourselves to become easily discouraged when love is not always obviously successful or pleasant. Love never quits. Even when an enemy has hit you on the right cheek and you have turned the other, and he's also hit that. These men had deep relationships with Christ. And consequently, they were people who were zealous for beauty, zealous for good works. This is what God's called us to. So to recap real quick, there's three things, right? The gospel has to be the main engine. The house that we live in has to be primary. The cross is central to our lives. We're a people who pursue holiness. And we're a people whose main identity has to be sons and daughters of God, a people who are possessed by God himself. He owns us. David has this psalm, Psalm 27, 4, and I'll end with this. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and this is our goal. I read this verse, and I'm like, man, this... I share this. I want this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There's nothing better than gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and dwelling with him in his house. I'm just going to pray over you guys. Would you bow your heads? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we have access to your word, Father. I thank you that your son came and died. That you chose to die, Father, for us because you wanted to be with us so badly. That you bore the greatest suffering that man's ever seen, Lord. An undeserved suffering on our behalf. 
You wanted to walk with us and be with us in intimate relationship. And now we have this message that the rest of the world needs, that people are hungering for the true beauty that is found only in you, God. There are restless souls everywhere, Lord, and we have the most powerful message the world has ever seen. Would you give us the grace, would you give us the strength and the boldness to go out and preach it and do it and become a people who are zealous for the beauty of God? Chicago needs this, Lord. Our numbers may be small, we may be the minority, Lord, but you have the most powerful word. We've seen you do it throughout history over and over and over again, and we know you can do it again, God. Give us a church full of broken people who see the world hurting and say, hey, you know what? I'm not better than you. I'm hurting with you and both of us need salvation. Come join me. God, give these people strength. Holy Spirit, be with these people. God, we thank you for what we're doing and we thank you for Trinity Church and all God's people said. When you like and subscribe, this video reaches more people.